we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, July the 16th, 2021. I am your host, Alison Cole, and I am joined here today by my co-host, Grace Wampold. Welcome. Hi. It's been a while since I've produced a new show and I'm so happy to be back. Lots has been happening in the world for animal protection and we'll be able to do some catch up on this week's show to arm you, our listeners, with the knowledge we need to know to be informed citizens and make the world a better place. Today we'll be revisiting the issues of over-antibiotic use in farmed animals across the world. 50 billion animals are factory farmed at any given time worldwide. And with this industry comes the standard practice of medicating animals in their cramped and unhealthy conditions with antibiotics to try to prevent illness and infections before they inevitably come. As you can imagine, this gross overuse of antibiotics feeds into our waterways, airways, and meat supplies and causes humans to become more and more resistant to antibiotics when we need them to fight infections in our bodies. World Animal Protection recently did a thorough study of finding superbugs in our waterways near several factory farms across the world, including a pig farm in Manitoba. And farming campaign manager Lynn Cavanaugh will be on the show for our feature interview to explain these findings to our listeners and how we can turn this situation around. And for our first interview today, we'll be speaking with the Vancouver Humane Society's Executive Director, Amy Morris, about the situation of structurally vulnerable people in our communities who have companion animals as part of their family. Homelessness and physical and mental disabilities serve as major barriers to caring for an animal, and Amy will be telling us about VHS's work to tackle these barriers in creating new systems that address the human and animal relationship as a whole when receiving social services and vet care. That interview is coming up in about 13 minutes, so please do stay tuned. Also, we'll be having a ticket giveaway for a pair of free tickets to the screening of the award-winning new film, Gunda, that premieres in Vancouver this Friday night, July 16th, that's tonight, with an additional screening on Tuesday, July the 20th. Make sure to stay tuned until the end of the show for your chance to win the tickets. Earlier this week, the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals, based here in BC, hosted a free webinar to inform the community on updates and background on fur farming in BC. We heard from a variety of animal advocates, including Dr. Sarah Dubois from the BCSPCA, Chief Judy Wilson from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, Dr. Jan Hayek, an infectious disease physician, and Leslie Fox, the Executive Director of the Fur Bearers. I'm grateful that the fur bearers held this informative webinar session for anyone who wanted to attend and they will be sending out a recording of the webinar later this week for anyone who wants to listen to it and we'll post it on our Facebook. And how this went was each person gave a 10 minute presentation on a topic specifically that they wanted to talk about on fur farming. And then there was an open question period at the end. Now, Grace, you were attending the webinar with me there. I wonder if you could mention a few highlights for you from the webinar itself. Absolutely. Yeah, I really loved how holistic it was that they had you know, native Indian chief here, as well as someone who was an expert in immunology and pathology. And then of course, Leslie Fox, the amazing executive director of the fur bears. 
And I really liked how they discussed how diseases are spread between humans and animals, which has been something that we've talked about zoonotic diseases on the show this year. But the way I think he discussed how a very important fact that humans have encroached on landscapes that we've never been in before. And a lot of diseases exist to keep humans out of certain landscapes. So when we enter new territories, inevitably we'll come into contact with new species as well as new diseases. And we're finding this happening across the globe as of right now. We're seeing this is very common in the Amazon. And there's a very poignant example that was given to us of the forests in East Asia, where they were clear-cutted for pigs farming, and it ended up causing neurological diseases that had been essentially magnified in the bodies of pigs and then spread to humans. So this is not a new concept that we are getting, and as stated by him as well, 75% of new diseases are spread from animals to humans. So I really liked how that was discussed in context with mink farming, how over this year there have been over 431 outbreaks on mink farms across the globe. And, you know, we had mink farms shut down in BC for a short period of time, but it's time that we fully close them. It's time that we end mink farming in British Columbia. Yeah, and and all farming at that. So yes, so we learned that we do have we have 10 mink farms in BC and about 60 Canada wide. And there's one chinchilla farm in BC as well. There are other fur farmed animals, of course, Canada wide, which includes raccoon dogs, foxes and rabbits. Like you might wonder, where am I going to see a raccoon dog fur? Well, they actually come on a lot of jackets that are even you know, there's no fur labeling laws in Canada. And often jackets that you might find at somewhere like well winners used to carry them but they've since pledged not to carry fur but the thing is you'll see them at these lower price stores and they're not labeled they're not labeled they're labeled as faux fur and they're actually real fur and you know there's all kinds of like trinkets keychains like say little like like jewelry that like might have like a like a pom-pom on a hat that might be real fur so that's where you're finding this like these little animals furs that are just like foxes and rabbits and raccoon dogs also foxes I've seen them so much on on real fur jackets which we'll talk a little about in a bit now all these mink and other animals they're housed in industrial farms they're not unlike factory farms for animal meat in fact they're the same thing they're rows and rows upon dark sheds that are packed with thousands of animals and as such, uh, you know, these animals that are living in cramped conditions, which we are explained for mink, a mink and her baby will be allowed to take up the space of less than two standard size pieces of paper. And that's not a lot, you know. So just like humans, animals that are kept in these conditions are really cramped. Their immune systems are down. And you know how we can easily catch a cold or infection if we're not feeling great, right? If our immune system's down, we're not being able to take care of ourselves. Well, it's the same thing with animals. And that's why we're seeing diseases happen in animals, which are then passed on to humans. And again, you were speaking about the 431 COVID outbreaks around the world. Well, that was those mink caught COVID from humans who then passed who passed it to the mink and then it mutated and they the mink passed it back to the humans and that's what we're seeing these days right so yeah and it's true I mean I also want to add you know like that statement of the two pieces of paper that's approximately you know the size of two battery cages that we keep chickens in and it has recently been outlawed to hold uh, egg-laying hens in battery cages. So evidently, you know, that is, isn't being extended to other animals that we're not contemplating, we're not considering these fur farms. And it's really important to note, I mean, minks are very similar to um, muskrats and ferrets, if you're familiar. And these are generally solitary animals. They live by themselves in aquatic environments. They swim, they hunt, they're generally carnivores as well. And it's completely inappropriate to keep animals such as minks in close quarters with other minks. They're generally aggressive to one another. And we talk about welfare. We try to talk about, you know, what is appropriate when even having animals in confined spaces. And the most important thing generally is, are they able to exhibit natural behaviors? And clearly, these animals, it's, it's a completely inappropriate to have minks so tight in such tight quarters with one another 
or they're at risk for disease, or they're at, you know, they're unable to perform any of the daily activities that they would choose to be doing if they were living their lives freely. Yes, and I can say myself that I used to work in a restaurant in my younger years right on the water and I used to see these animals just outside on the rocks doing their thing, uh, having as much space as they needed right by the ocean. They live like, you know, they, they're ocean animals too. And to strip that away from them and just for, this is just for fashion. And this brings the question, like, is fur appropriate anymore? There used to be a time where I guess you could say, you know, people had full fur coats because they needed to keep warm. Maybe, you know, back in the days when there was no electricity and, and, you know, it's completely unnecessary right now. We have so many good synthetics. And as Leslie Fox pointed out in the webinar in the European Union, the UK has already banned fur as well as Austria, the Netherlands, Estonia, Norway, France, and other countries. California is the first state to ban the sales of fur starting in January 2022, and they're the fifth largest economy in the world. So I can't wait for that. The huge fur brand Canada Goose just announced three weeks ago that they are now dropping fur. This news dropped my jaw, I can say. And on the heels of that announcement came the news that the big fur coat brand Moose Knuckles is doing the same because they have to keep up with their competitor, right? So these brands are learning that, you know, they're for-profit companies and they're learning that the profits are now with dropping fur because people don't want it. And this is because of animal advocate pressure. So high-end designers such as Gucci, Prada, Giorgio Armani, along with major retailers such as Nordstrom, Mace, season Bloomingdale's some of these are just recently announced they've all made public commitments to ditch real fur and you know Leslie said that COVID demands that we reevaluate our relationship with animals and wildlife I think that is certainly overdue so for me I feel like the main message of this webinar if you agree is people kept bringing back the notion that we all need to call for an end to fur farming in BC. Of course, Canada wide as well. The majority of Canadians are opposed to fur, right? So, and I just wanted to end that as Chief Wilson said, she said it's inhumane, wasteful and necessary, as well as very disrespectful to the animals and also fundamentally in conflict with indigenous values. And I think if you can take those key points as takeaways from this little discussion here and from the webinar, if you watch it yourself, that you'll agree and that you can also do your part to call for an end to fur in BC and Canada. But one thing you can do right now to help stop the fur trade worldwide is to add your name to a petition by the Fur Alliance that we have posted on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and that's asking for a worldwide end to the fur industry. The DTES Response Fund supports COVID-19 rapid response efforts for the 15,000 people at risk in Vancouver's downtown east side. Your financial donation helps cover food, hygiene products, cleaning supplies, transportation, and telecommunications. All donations are being received by the Network of Inner City Community Services Society and will receive a charitable tax receipt. Visit their website at dtesresponse.ca. That's dtesresponse.ca. For our first interview today, we have the Vancouver Humane Society's Executive Director, Amy Morris, on the show to speak about their campaign, Because They Matter. One in 10 people experiencing homelessness have companion animals and their bonds are unbreakable. When people need to access veterinary care for their animals and are experiencing a period of low or no income, they often don't know where to turn. This is where the Vancouver Humane Society's new program comes in. On July 25th, participants will safely distribute harnesses, dog treats, leashes, and blankets to people and animals who spend their days on the streets while sharing information about Vancouver Humane Society's emergency veterinary funds. Amy is here today to speak on the barriers that keep structurally vulnerable people from accessing veterinary assistance for their companion animals and how you can help with the Because They Matter campaign. Hello, Amy, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Thank you for having me. 
Well, thank you for coming on the show today to discuss these issues. The Vancouver Humane Society has also recently published a report called Addressing Animal Neglect Through the Provision of Veterinary Outreach Services. And I'd like to talk about some of the findings in this report. It starts with saying that people who are structurally vulnerable are consistently confronted by a society that does not provide support to maintain the human-animal bond. I know this to be true because our Canadian system is not even equipped to fully provide the needed support for the vulnerable people themselves. Can you start by telling us about the multiple barriers that these animal guardians face in keeping a companion animal? Certainly. You know, ultimately, the reasons that people are experiencing barriers tends to be related to systemic poverty or systemic discrimination. And so the outcome of these two kind of systemic problems tends to be a challenge of being employed, people experiencing homelessness, people experiencing domestic violence, lack of access to education, and maybe they have a criminal record and that's linked to their difficulty being employed, short-term or long-term physical health challenges or mental health challenges, uh, the use of substances, having come to the community recently, immigration, being a former child in care, and so much more. So these are barriers to accessing any kind of services, and then having a pet and caring for a pet, although the benefit is so strong, makes these barriers even more challenging. Right. And in the report, I was actually reading that there's an estimated 500 to 600,000 people in British Columbia who live below the poverty line. So that estimates about 230,000 households in that segment who would have animals. And that represents about 100,000 animals in need in BC. That's just incredible when you think about that, because this is actually a really large segment of our society, right? And it's just something that can't be ignored. It needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And certainly there's a a challenge, particularly because there's some assumption perhaps that people who are low income would not have pets. Some people think, okay, well, maybe they're a luxury, but really people who are low income tend to have pets even more so because they are a safety net for the person. They are, you know, a constant companion. They are mental health support. They're someone to love and to love back. And ultimately, all of those mean that it's even more important to keep that bond together. Yeah, that's so true. So, you know, companion animals, they're falling through the cracks in our social system. Can you describe for us an example scenario of how this comes to be, especially when animals have such a crucial place in their relationships with humans that should be recognized? Well, certainly, you know, our healthcare system does provide certain supports to a certain degree for people. So something like perhaps medications that provide mental health support are covered, but beings like pets who also provide the same kind of support aren't really considered under the the healthcare system, even though they're really a, a huge part of it. And so ultimately, since they're left out of sort of the healthcare system, they end up sort of being left out of, of considered family. You know, kids, for example, are considered family are there's special funding provided if you have kids and support for helping your kids. But if you have pets, the same kind of considerations just aren't made by policy. And so what happens is social service agencies may not have the thought or the supports in place, traditional agencies. And so then it's left to animal welfare or, or animal support agencies to sort of fill in those gaps to support the animals. Right. Your report speaks about trauma and PTSD for obviously the humans, but the animals as well. Can you describe for us, just for our listeners to paint a picture of how animals in these situations can be experiencing PTSD and that surrendering or relinquishing one's animal to get vet care in the social structure that we do have is not the best solution to these issues because there's the animal's mental welfare at risk as well. Sure, yeah. I think um, something so simple as an animal having a mass on it. So if someone who hasn't experienced systemic poverty, who has experienced privilege in their life, has a pet and they get a mass on them, what happens is they go to the vet, they pay the vet, the mass is removed, nothing, you know, that you move on from there. 
But when a person who who's really reliant on their pet has a really strong bond with them but has no income it is dealing with the same situation, they have to make a decision between themselves um, having maybe housing or food or, you know, their basic needs and their pet having their needs met. And so that decision is really unfair. It creates an enormous amount of, of conflict. And, you know, if the pet were to be surrendered, sure, the pet would get the medical care, but they would experience a significant loss from the bond they had with their person. You can imagine, you know, if you have any, any animals in your life, they're upset when they're separated from you. They have, they know you, they trust you. And so it's really unfair to do that to pets just so that they can get the medical care they need. Right. And that's, I was reading like, that's sort of how our system works now is that if someone cannot afford vet care, the only way that they might get care is to have to relinquish the animal. It's just unmanageable to me because that just, that ruins everything. Like it, it's just destroying the whole relationship that people have with their animals. You know, you're tearing a family member apart and that's not what vulnerable humans need either, right? So as you described, there's no social safety net. There needs to be a social safety net in place for these situations and the intentions of this reporter to provide sound practices for those working in these environments. So that is for social services, vet clinics, and animal welfare organizations. So how can these multi-barriered human-animal relationships be honored while still getting the help that these animals need? Well, really, you know, there's a couple different ways. One is animal agencies, social service agencies, and vet clinics all shifting their own way that they provide services. So there's there's lots of small things that can be done, such as engaging in, in open conversations to better understand a person's needs, to partnering to provide for, you know, a person and their pet's needs and collaboration. So maybe one agency has a little bit of money and another agency has a little bit. Well, how can that be combined to get the best outcome? And and finally, it's just coming at it really with a, a deep respect for the individual and the pet being served. Certainly, it's it's not covered in the report, but something that we've learned after this point from an agency called CARE out of the United States is that they found that 97% of people working in animal welfare had an unconscious bias against people in poverty. And so although they're working in this field, they're seeing that, you know, there's sort of a, a bias of privilege and it results in, in really inequitable circumstances. And so it's time for us to acknowledge our own biases as, you know, organizations and individuals and turn things around to give people the respect that will help their pets and keep them together. Well, it sounds like you're describing this new concept that I found out about in your report called One Welfare. Can you please tell us about the concept of One Welfare? Yeah, One Welfare, what's really interesting in it is it takes into account both human well-being, animal well-being, but also the environment that we're situated in. And I have to admit that while this concept is newly branded, while it's it's sort of out there as, you know, there's logos and everything, I think it's also a concept that has existed in Indigenous knowledge for kind of time immemorial, where there's this recognition of having a balance with those around us and, and that care can only happen to ourselves if we're caring for others and caring for our where we live. And so this can apply in so many different circumstances, this concept, but ultimately what it means is we are making decisions based on a collective understanding rather than just, you know, maybe one problem, I'll solve that one problem and I'll forget the rest of what makes you, you. And, and so that's what we need to work towards is, okay, how do we overall improve people's and animals' quality of life as, as a kind of cohesive project? Well, that's a great concept and I really hope to see it being carried forward in our communities. Can you tell us about how VHS is implementing One Welfare in the work that you do? And then please also let us know about the Because They Matter fundraising campaign. Certainly. So, you know, one way that we're doing this is we're really looking at trauma-informed practice. We understand that to be more on par with what social service agencies 
are doing is really, you know, to recognize that everyone has some amount of trauma and that that impacts their behaviors, their decision making, you know, the same goes for pets. And so where when we speak with clients who are accessing assistance to, you know, veterinary services and we're providing funding for them, we're not just having a cold transaction where it's, yep, okay, you can get funding, we'll call the vet, bye. It's more so, okay, where are you at? What's going on? What supports do you have? What supports do you still need? And how do we make sure that your whole experience at the vet is positive as well? And so when when sometimes people have experiences of maybe discrimination at the vet or maybe they, they don't feel heard and so they can come back to VHS and share that and then we can act as kind of a, an intervener by better, you know, grabbing that information and speaking between so that there's a, a clear understanding and a, a better path forward. Sometimes the interactions are, are just perfect and we don't need to get involved at all and those are great. So it's just about taking each case as it comes and providing that care that we know the best outcome will be that the animal gets the care that they need, particularly because the person will have absorbed all of the information. You know, and you're in a state of stress when you're at a vet. I think everyone can can agree on that, that, you know, I personally have a lot of anxiety about going to the vet. And so, you know, how, how do we better support folks in getting the information after the fact so that when they're a bit calmer, you know, all the care instructions and everything are are easier to absorb. So the Because They Matter fundraising campaign is really fundraising to support this work. And in particular, it's a combination fundraising, but also outreach event. And so we'll be gathering supplies from pet stores and handing them out to people on the downtown east side, as well as sharing about the, the funding we have for emergencies because one of the biggest things we know is that sometimes when people are in emergency they don't know what's available to them and sometimes the vets don't think to share that and so that's the time that people are most in crisis and we want to support them during that time. Well thank you very much Amy Morris Executive Director of the Vancouver Humane Society for coming on the show to share with us this information about people in vulnerable situations and how they can be provided help for their animals who need vet services and other services as well. If you would like to read the report discussed here yourself to see full details, you can find it posted on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, as well as on our website at animalvoices.org in the post for today's show. You can also find a link there to the Because They Matter campaign to make a donation to the fundraiser for the outreach that is happening on July the 25th. Also remember to visit VancouverHumane.ca to find out more about the great work of this organization to protect animals. Thank you once again, Amy, for this talk, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you so much. You as well. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca. And here we have some news. On July 7th, an article was released regarding the UBC Faculty of Medicine declaring that they will stop using live pigs in surgical courses. Progress on Non-Animal Research Society, the PNARS, has pleaded to the University of British Columbia to hold animal-free essential surgical skills courses, which previously involved live pigs being subject to dozens of invasive procedures. Work by the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and the Vancouver-based Animal Defense and Anti-Vivisection Society of BC were instrumental in bringing about this change. I just want to say 
about that being a longtime member of the University of BC community and a past student and your current student there. I just want to say how happy I am about this progress. It's big news. Uh, UBC has been known to be very traditional and old school in its ways for many, 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 many years since 1918. And now they finally have gotten on board with uh, other progressive universities and making this step forward. So good for you, UBC. And I hope to see more progress in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible. I've recently had a traumatic injury and I've learned through this that, you know, the trauma centers that we have, there are lots of trainers, there are mannequins available. The article I first read talked about Trauma Man, which is a surgical simulator. And there are, you know, living cadaver models that exist now. So we don't really need to be harming live animals to learn about surgical procedures. There are so many more opportunities these days. So I was really excited to get that news as well. Another update is regarding the chuck wagon races at the Calgary Stampede. So last year, the Calgary Stampede was canceled due to COVID, but this year it has resumed with lower capacity. Because of this, they're saying that the Calgary Stampede will no longer have a chuck wagon race, which is an extremely cruel event, resulting in multiple horses' deaths every single year. Generally, it is three or more horses that are pulling a small chariot. Often there are five racers or more running these tracks with these horses. Generally speaking, horse racing is very, very dangerous to horses and is something that we here at Animal Voices do not condone. Many horses die by the age of four due to horse racing. So to hear that there is a small update for the stampede, they're trying to reduce animal cruelty in this way, is incredible to hear. They're not promising that they will uphold this next year. So obviously, uh, you know, Calgary Stampede is one of, you know, it's the biggest, most traumatic, terrible events for animals that occurs in Canada. It's good to see that at least this progress is occurring this year. And hopefully if we all sign, we find that petition. The Vancouver Humane Society, who has always been very active in campaigning against the rodeo, they sent out a letter, a very easy form letter that you can just add your name to, to sign. And I just signed it myself. Uh, They're looking for 5,000 people to send these letters to the Calgary Stampede to ask them to get rid of all the cruel rodeo events. And that includes the calf rodeo as well, which is super, super inhumane if you've ever seen photos of that. And yeah, it's great that they've uh, they've dropped the one chuck wagon from the the races this year, but we want them to take it all the way. And the Vancouver Humane Society is calling upon them to do an independent review that can assess the chuck wagging events and the team roping events and the steer wrestling as well. Yeah, so that Link will be in this week's web post, and please do send that email off to support ending calf roping and chuck wagon. Yeah, you can find it on Facebook as well, Animal Voices Vancouver. You are listening to the Animal Voices show on 100.5 FM CFRO on Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. For our feature interview today, we have Lynn Cavanaugh on the show. She is the farming campaign manager of the nonprofit organization World Animal Protection Canada. World Animal Protection's mission is to end the needless suffering of animals by influencing decision makers to put animals on the global agenda and by inspiring people to change animals' lives for the better. Just recently, World Animal Protection has released a 40-page report entitled Silent Superbug Killers in a River Near You. This report speaks on how factory farms contaminate watercourses on three continents and has discovered that public waterways next to industrial farms in Manitoba and around the world contain antibiotic-resistant genes that are dangerous to public health. In today's interview, Lynn will share some of the details of this report and explain the ongoing dangers of antibiotic resistance in our country and beyond. Hello, Lynn, and welcome to the Animal Voices show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you very much for coming on the show today to discuss with us a topic that is of ongoing concern in Canada and worldwide. That is the subject of standardized antibiotic use in factory farms on animals and the dangers that this practice presents to public health. Can you start by explaining to our listeners, for those who don't know, how antibiotics work and what happens when we overuse them? Sure. So antibiotics are medications designed to treat bacterial infections. And when we overuse them, it gives bacteria a chance to develop resistance to them. And then they're no longer effective in treating infections. And when approximately 75% of antibiotics globally are given to farm animals, it's a major contributor to antibiotic resistance. Yeah, it's something that we really don't talk about. And speaking of antibiotic resistance, can you explain as well a term that we'll be using? What are ARGs? So those are antibiotic resistant genes. And when we undertook our study, that's what we tested for. And they're essentially the building blocks of antibiotic resistant bacteria. Bacteria can acquire resistant genes either by spontaneous mutation or by genetic exchange with other bacteria. So it means they can pass on a resistant gene. One bacteria can pass on a resistant gene to another. But that's what we tested for in our water testing study. Right. The ARG. And this comes to the subject of superbugs. So can you speak about this research that was done in 2020? You did it in four countries over three continents that resulted in World Animal Protection's report on silent superbug killers. What locations were examined and what evidence was collected and analyzed? Yeah, so what we did is we undertook water, collecting water and soil samples from public waterways that are near industrial pig operations in four countries, Spain, Thailand, the U.S. and Canada. And in Canada, we did the testing in Manitoba, where we collected 42 water and soil samples near eight intensive pig operations. And the reason we chose Manitoba is although it's the third largest province for pig farming in Canada, it has the highest density of farms. So a lot of animals in close proximity to one another. The largest number of pigs on one farm in Manitoba is over 5,700. So that's why we chose Manitoba for for conducting this testing. And what we found in the 42 samples that we collected is 38 of those were positive for at least one of the tetracycline resistant genes included in the analysis. We found also that more than three quarters of the samples were positive for three or more tetracycline resistant genes. And overall, we found positive results for resistance to antibiotics categorized as highly important or critically important for human health by the World Health Organization. And I'd like you to speak, if you could, please, about the conditions that lead up to actually these superbugs being created off these industrial farms. We're talking Manitoba here. This is happening in Canada. I've I've been into an industrial hog farm myself, and I, I can say it was the worst of the worst I've ever seen. It's This is standard industrialized practice in Canada. So could you describe for us what these farms look like and the conditions that the pigs are in to make these antibiotics needed to give them? And they're being given to them preventatively Yes, that's right. And that's a really good point, Allison. So the the issue is that the animals are given what's called prophylactic antibiotics, or as you said, preventive. And that's different than giving antibiotics to a sick animal. Of course, we want animals who are sick to get treated, just like we would treat ourselves if we have an infection. But giving them on a preventive basis en masse in large quantities is the issue. That's what leads to the development of antibiotic resistance, because there's just so many antibiotics being dished out regularly. And the reason the animals are given prophylactic antibiotics is because the conditions in which they're raised are what we would consider poor welfare. So that makes them more vulnerable to illness. You know, things like being kept in crowded, barren conditions, mixing unknown animals with one another, these things cause the animals stress. And when an a biological system or organism is stressed, they're going to be more vulnerable to opportunistic infections. Other things such as early weaning, taking the piglets from the sow too early, they're still growing, they're, you know, a, you know how human babies are, are more vulnerable to infections. Same with piglets that are weaned too early. They're also subjected to what we call painful procedures like tail docking and castration. Again, procedures that make them more vulnerable to infections. So, 
the answer in the intensive agriculture industry is to give these antibiotics to prevent any illness or infection rather than changing the conditions in which the animals are raised for the better to suit their social, biological, and physical needs. Right. So there will be people listening to this who might be from Manitoba. They might be from the Fraser Valley here in the Lower Mainland, big um, farming land there. And they might say, well, my uncle treats his pigs fine. They're not confined. They get to have their space and walk around. What would be your response to this? Well, there are different levels of systems, I guess you could say. And there's no doubt that some farming systems might be a little bit better But by and large, a conventional system does not meet the welfare of the animals. It's not to vilify or point the finger at one individual farmer, but it's more a systemic problem. And it has emerged over time, over many decades of changing the system that is really rooted in a priority for production and economics, getting animals fattened and to slaughter as quickly as possible. And the animals have suffered as a result. And so it's not like one farmer does not care about their animals. But again, it's it's the system issue. In order to be competitive, they need to raise their animals in a certain way. Now, if there's a, a, a producer or a farmer might choose not to go that conventional route and might choose to have what we call a higher welfare system, perhaps organic or just something where maybe it's not labeled organic, but higher welfare, where they let the animals go outside or the pigs are raised on straw, which is a really important enrichment material for pigs to meet their behavioral desires to root around. And they might have small numbers of animals that have more space. But in conventional barns, even if they're not in a confinement housing system like a gestation stall, the pens can still be quite crowded and new animals are getting mixed with each other regularly, which is definitely a stress for the animals. I have to say that upon my experience, they're really dirty as well. There's just urine and fecal matter everywhere because that's where they have to go to the bathroom is where they live. So I I imagine that that doesn't help the situation as well, just the really dirty conditions. Yes, that's it too. And that's something that's really hard to paint a picture of. As you just said, Allison, it's dirty, and but it's hard to paint a picture unless you're in a barn. So what happens in a typical system is that the urine and the feces fall in the slats on the floor below. And so there's what it's what's called a manure pit. And that's where all the slurry is collected. And the fumes from the waste comes up into the barn. And so it's quite pungent with ammonia and the pigs are breathing that in every day. So that's another source of poor welfare in terms of the air quality. And then, you know, the the slurry or the, the you know, the, the feces is where the residue antibiotics collect because when the antibiotics are fed to the animals, mostly in feed, but there could be some injectables too, they're not fully metabolized. I mean, things through, you know, just the biological process get eliminated and the residue antibiotics are in that manure. And when you have big hog operations, there's huge amounts of liquid manure or or slurry, as it's sometimes called, which needs to be disposed of. And that gets disposed of by using it as fertilizer on crops, largely. But that then can seep into the groundwater, can make its way into public waterways, into well water, into recreational water. And that's how bacteria in the environment become resistant. And that's how they can make their way to to humans as well, being in, in these public waterways or on crops. Yes, and I know that people who live in these areas, uh, for example, when I was at that industrialized hog farm, just not far from where we live here, just the air in the area just reeked of ammonia. And it was just, it was just like a, a smell you couldn't get rid of. And I was reading in your report, as you said, a large amount of the antibiotics aren't metabolized. That's up to 70% of antibiotics that are administered to farm animals that aren't absorbed. And I was just really shocked to hear that because as you were saying, where they end up going is into our environmental waterways, which is what you were testing, right? Yes, that's right. We tested the the waterways that in public spaces, we didn't go onto property in public spaces that are near the farms and also soil samples. 
Um, we didn't actually test the air, but in the report we referenced another study. So that that found antibiotic resistant gene material in the air near near these farms. And other studies too in Canada have found similar results where antibiotic resistant genes were, you know, in the feces of wildlife that were living on or near the farm, in recreational beaches that are near industrial pig operations. So there's other evidence to show it's not just the, the study and the sampling that we did. The really main thing to emphasize here is that it's such a, a serious public health issue. If people are new to animal welfare or they're not as familiar with factory farming, we know that, and this is an Animal Voices show, so I think that probably a lot of your audience is aware about how horrible these systems are for animals. But the link to public health is very strong too. And this is partly why we're working on these issues to show that connection between how we treat animals has significant implications for humans too and the interconnection between animals and humans. And, you know, the World Health Organization cites antibiotic resistance as one of the top 10 global public health crises. 700,000 people die right now every year from not being able to be treated by an antibiotic because they have resistance. And these can be commonplace infections, you know, and, and they estimate by 2050, it could be upwards of 10 million if we don't get a handle on this issue. And industrial animal agriculture is a major contributor to that problem. Yes, it's really a crisis. And the World Health Organization has even warned that the superbug crisis is just as dangerous as the pandemic we're currently experiencing with that many deaths, which really goes unreported in the media and to the public, I believe. Now, the European Union, it seems that they're always ahead of us in many ways, especially with regards to factory farming. They are actually banning the administering of antibiotics across groups of farmers armed animals to prevent disease by January 2022. Should Canada be the next country to instate such a ban? And where does Canada currently stand on this issue? I'm wondering. Yes, absolutely. We should be the next country. Whether we will be or not is another story. But yes, that's one thing we are lobbying for in our um, when we're when we're speaking to government representatives as we are talking about this issue and asking the government that and, and we're just in the early days of starting what we're calling our new food system strategy, where we do focus still, of course, on animal welfare, farm animal welfare, but also linking those problems to other issues like antibiotic overuse in farming. So we would like to see the Canadian government phase out the prophylactic use of antibiotics as they've done in Europe. It's really necessary and you're right, Europe can will often take the lead on these kinds of things, but it's a very important precedent because their farming systems are similar to, they are globally intensive. I mean, they have some in some cases, there are better conditions. They might have stronger animal welfare laws. But overall, it's still an economy that has a lot of animals in industrial agriculture. And so if they can do it, we can do it. I think it's surprising and alarming that this has come so far to even be an issue because it's already mm -hmm. killing hundreds of thousands of people every year. As the report says, there is no international standard describing the concentration at which superbugs in the environment become dangerous to people. So consequently, no one is held responsible and farm discharge of antibiotics and superbugs into waterways are unmonitored. Now, how can we make our governments accountable on this issue to the health of their citizens, you know, specifically in Canada, but obviously worldwide as well, where you're discovering this problem happening? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I think it, it might sound trite, but I think it's really important for people to speak to their legislator, their member of parliament, because we know in the work that we're doing now, as we start to talk to legislators about our campaign issues, is that, that they say it's important to hear from their constituents and they prioritize those conversations. If more and more people say they're concerned about antibiotic use and give them some stats of the kinds of things that I shared you know, the number of people that are dying, the 75% of antibiotics used worldwide go into farming. When we meet with MPs, sometimes they don't even know that and they're completely stunned. So that's one thing that they can do. I think also the private sector is an important forum for making change. So retailers, for example, sometimes you'll see that some meat products have antibiotic free. And that's because there is a growing concern around 
for people that eat meat around consuming those antibiotics. And so the retailers are an important constituent or stakeholder in making change. We don't want to necessarily see antibiotic free because we want to make sure, as I said, animals get treated if they're sick. We'd also love to see the medical community be more outspoken. You know, you hear about the medical community being really mindful about not over-prescribing antibiotics to people if they come in for like, you know, a cold and a few sniffles. Sometimes, <laughs> but, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. yes, it's true. I would say it's, it's certainly much better than it was 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, that's not the bulk of the antibiotics being dished out and served up. It's it's through farm animals. And so if they spoke out about the impact on human health, that could have some sway too, because people, of course, res- respect the scientific voice. It's astounding, actually, as you mentioned before, I believe it's it's 80% of all antibiotics that are administered in Canada, and I've heard, you know, this is, this is in other countries too, they're given to animals and not humans. So no wonder yeah. why, why we have a resistance to them. Most of the, those antibiotics that aren't absorbed by animals, they're actually mm-hmm. coming back to humans, right? And that's just, yeah. that's, a, that's a national and international travesty. It's, it's a, and you know, with COVID having happened in the past year and the way that that has all impacted society, you'd think that we'd be really ready to make some drastic changes. And in the report, I noticed that one of the recommendations also is to push industry to create more plant proteins in their sectors, which would ultimately drive out the need for humans to eat meat. Can you speak a little bit more on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, in the end, that's going to have the biggest impact is we need to change what we're eating. And we need to consume far less animal foods in favor of more plant-based foods. And why is that? Well, because the demand for meat and dairy are and other animal foods are driving intensification of animal agriculture. There are so many animals squashed in this close confinement or crowded housing systems across the world. It's because we eat so much meat and it's that demand that's driving it. So to reduce the demand for animal foods will make way for us to make changes to that system. You know, right now the earth does not have the carrying capacity to have all the animals that exist right now on outdoors in big pastures. It's just not possible. But if we're raising far fewer animals, then there would be space to have them raised in a more humane and sustainable way that's in more, you know, harmony with the earth. And, you know, of course, being vegan is a great option, but it's not something that everyone is willing to do. So what we say is that cut down your consumption drastically of animal foods. If you were to cut it by 50% in favor of more plant-based foods, you would have a huge impact on um, not only the animals, but when it's a higher welfare system, then we don't need to use the antibiotics. And then it's also better for the environment too. I would say there's a growing awareness around industrial agriculture and the impact on environment, but it's of course a major contributor to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, which itself has its own health implications. And so it's just better all around. And this is another thing that we're talking to the government about is to start being more vocal about that. It will help meet our climate change targets in Canada. It aligns with our the Canada Food Guide that was recently revised that really emphasizes the plant-based food and, and the, the meat and other animal products are just part of the protein quadrant rather than having their own quadrant, which is a huge progressive move. So we need to just start to implement our own policy that's already in place there, our food guide. So there's a lot of opportunity for the government, but also on the consumer side, huge opportunity is just to make those changes to the way you consume food and it's healthier too. And one final point, when you said about the plant protein opportunities, I mean, there's also a business growth sector there that that is huge. And, you know, that's something too, I think the Canadian government can do and and is that more investment in that sector it's business opportunity as well as you know being important for health and climate change and and we're just going to see it grow you know you see big companies even maple leaf you know a big meat producer has rebranded itself as a protein company they're no longer a meat company they've rebranded because they see huge opportunity in the plant protein sector so if they do it you know that that's where the market is going 
Well, thank you very much, Lynn Kavanaugh, Farming Campaign Manager of the nonprofit World Animal Protection Canada, for coming on the show today to explain your organization's findings on superbugs in our waterways from factory farms and what we can do to stop this. If you would like to read the report yourself, you can find it posted on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, as well as on our website at animalvoices.org in the post for today's show. Also, please visit World worldanimalprotection.ca to find out more about this organization's work and how it has been serving to protect animals for 50 years. Thank you once again, Lynn, for the very insightful and important information that all Canadians and really global citizens need to know. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Animal Voices Radio Show on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. If you missed part of today's broadcast or would like to pass it on to a friend, the podcast can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org also on coopradio.org and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Tune in next week on Friday, July the 23rd. We'll be playing a surprise rebroadcast. Now, you've probably been listening this long today to get the details on how you can win a pair of free tickets to the premiere screening of the award-winning film Gunda, which is playing at the Rio Theatre tonight in Vancouver, as well as on Tuesday, July the 20th. Gunda chronicles the unfiltered lives of a mother pig, a flock of chickens, and a herd of cows with masterful intimacy, using stark, transcendent black-and-white cinematography and the farm's ambient soundtrack. Master director Victor Kosakowski invites the audience to slow down and experience life as his subjects do, taking in their world with a magical patience and an otherworldly perspective. Gunda asks us to meditate on the mystery of animal consciousness and reckon with the role humanity plays in it. The film is executive produced by Joaquin Phoenix. He loved it so much that he took it on. For your chance to win two tickets to either screening of Gunda, please go onto our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and click like on it. And please send today's show, which can be found at the top of our webpage at animalvoices.org, to two of your friends who you think would appreciate the show. You can just send them the link. Once you've done this, just simply either send us an email on Facebook or send us an email at info at animalvoices.org and let us know that you've done these two things. Plus, tell us which screening you would like to attend. We will send the winner a confirmation email this afternoon, July 16th by 3 p.m. to let you know that you have won and how to claim your tickets at the door. We here at Animal Voices modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Our past podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play so you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. Join our Facebook page and join us on Instagram, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. And if you want to get in touch, let us know how we're doing or send along show segment ideas. You can send us a note on Facebook or send us an email to info at animalvoices.org. We need help here at Animal Voices. We are an all-volunteer-run radio station and podcast covering animal advocacy issues. If you are tech savvy and know your way around editing audio or WordPress or social media, please contact us at info at animalvoices.org. If you would like to be part of the show, we also need people who know about animal advocacy issues or are willing to learn to be co-hosts on the show. Be part of the animal advocacy community by lending a hand or your voice for the animals. To close the show today, I am playing a song called My Best Friend, A Dog by Heidi Winsinger. Stay tuned next for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today. And remember to be kind to the animals.
La 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 